0: Those essential oil diffusers, they would use them like essential oil diffusers where they would put either oil of cloves or cinnamon or musk or rose oil in these cubical stone containers. They would heat them up and then the woman would take this big robe or blanket and she would drape herself over this while the uh, incense in there was was vaporized and it would literally soak into her skin into her clothes and so Albright points to this very text that we're looking at as a biblical example of how these women were using these uh, incense burners for this beautification process, this fragrant oil. Um, so after 12 months of preparation and the, the using of these incense burners, um, the woman is given Anything she wants from the harem to take with her into the king. This is a little bit uh, vague. What's intended here? Maybe she could take any special clothes or any jewelry, uh, any aphrodisiac lotions. The thing is, um, typically the woman going in was w- would take these things, and then she was be allowed to keep them the day after, you, you know, for services rendered. She, so she would, but she wouldn't be returned back to the harem of the virgins. She's now um, consigned to the harem of the concubines. <coughs> so she's in this different harem where now she's going to spend the rest of her life. Uh, I mean, she'd be living in the lap of luxury, but it would be desolate seclusion. She would never be allowed to go back to her home. She would never go back to her family. She would not be allowed to... to. Uh, raise a family of her own. She would not even be allowed to go back to the king again unless the king, by name, asked for her. Um, By the way, sometimes children were conceived in this way. These children were honored. They were given high places in government, but they could never be considered heirs to the throne. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 15. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace on the 10th month, which is the the month of Tobeth in the seventh year of his reign, By the way, this is how we know that it's actually December of 479 B.C. Um, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts to... uh, with royal generosity. So after these 12 months of beauty treatment, it it turns out that it's Esther's turn. And the the text here says she was taken. She was taken uh, into the king's chambers um, because Vashti had been deposed. But notice the text here says nothing about how she felt about that situation, what she thought was, was going on. Esther here asks for nothing from Haggai, except um, whatever it is that he recommends for her. But given the, the obvious sensual atmosphere created by the author here and the period of preparation in, complete, in, com, in competition that Esther had with these other girls, you can hardly uh, avoid wondering just what she does with a one-night audience with the king that uh, wins him and gives her favor more than all of the other hundreds of uh, girls that were in this competition. And we wonder, you know, how is it that she did win this favor? Was it something that she did? The text doesn't say. Was it something that God did? Is God working in King Ahasuerus' heart and, and God manipulates his heart to give her favor? Again, the text does not explain it that way. However, what is certain is that this young Jewish virgin apparently did whatever it took to please the king, this lascivious king, and she does win not only his favor but she wins the position of queen. Now that's very important to us at least in the uh, in the development of the story because it's because of this position that Esther finds herself in, that her whole nation is spared from annihilation, including the nation that should one day um, produce a a, a Messiah. Now, clearly the king here is more than a little pleased with Esther, but subsequent readers have not been as kind uh, about Esther. Some of them, you know, really question the, the morals of Esther at all. They have not been so approving of her behavior. You have to understand from the Jewish mind how terribly important it is to maintain Jewish identity if you're a Jew. And that's always been the case. And the primary markers of Jewish identity would be Sabbath keeping and circumcision and the dietary food laws and the injunctions against intermarrying. Esther seems to blow off all of these things. You know, she's trying to keep her Jewishness a secret from everyone. So obviously, she's not observing the Sabbath. She's in, a, she's in a harem, and she's not observing the ceremonial food laws. She's eating non-kosher foods that the, that the king was providing for her. Um, this injunction that Jews should not marry out of, her, out of their faith, she violates that one as well. She seems to ignore all of these without compunction. Again, she's been trying to conceal her Jewishness at this uh, stake, but the, the worst thing of, of all is here's this Jewish woman who's willing to have sex with a pagan king. It's hardly appropriate behavior for someone that we're going to put on a pedestal as an example of, of being the heroine of, uh, of, of the Bible. Of course, some people have tried to exonerate Esther by saying that all of the verbs that are used here about hef- Esther are in the passive voice. So consequently, they conclude that she is not making choices. Things are happening to her. She's not, make, she's con- not constant, consciously choosing to violate these things. She's being swept along by circumstances beyond her control. And some have argued that, well, you can hardly expect a a Jewish teenage girl to try to resist the the irresistible power of the Persian court, let alone the the king, the greatest king of all the world. So you can hardly expect her to stand up against that. However, as Ian Dugad said, and if you're reading the, the questions, this is on your question list. He says, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences Full obedience to God's law is always an option. Let me read that again, because really this is a point of the whole text here. If someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. I mean, think about that. Daniel also ends up in this kingdom too, remember? And Daniel refuses to eat of the non kosher food that the king's. Per- Put before him. More than that, Daniel is ordered to stop praying to this God of his, but Daniel chooses not to. Daniel would rather face the consequence of being thrown into the lion's den than to violate these kosher food laws or to stop praying to his God. Or consider Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They too are, are, are ordered to. Uh, um, give in to the idolatrous demands of the kings, but they're willing to go burn in a fiery furnace rather than violate God's law. Much earlier, not in this kingdom, but remember the story of Joseph. Joseph, he um, resists the sexual advances of someone in power, just like Esther's supposed to do here. And he, as a consequence of resisting this person, he spends years in a dungeon rather than to defile himself. In the post-exilic period, uh, Ezra it went to great length to show the people how terribly wrong it was to intermarry and that it should be avoided at, at any and all cost. You see, the truth is that at the end of the day, it's very difficult to avoid the most obvious reading of our text, and that is that Esther's behavior is morally disappointing. That's about as kind as I can put it. Esther's this sweet Jewish girl... She doesn't follow the dietary laws. She doesn't observe the Sabbath. She certainly did fornicate with a pagan king. The simple fact is she found herself between a rock and a hard place where it was difficult to resist, and she did not resist. She compromised. The Scripture is not a chronicle of all these great moral examples, ethical heroes, spiritual giants. It is rather the unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and then God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. Think about some of the great paragons of faith. Abraham. Abraham lied. Abraham disobeyed. Abraham disbelieved. And yet God used him in his redemptive purposes. Moses. Moses is a murderer. Moses also disobeys, and yet... God is willing to use him in his redemptive purposes. David, David is the man after God's own heart. David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. And yet God uses him in his redemptive purposes. Throughout Scripture, we see God's people making moral compromise. We see them fail ethically. We see them persistently sin, and yet the amazing thing is that God is providentially and graciously using them in spite of their compromises and their failures. And so here we have Esther. She's culpable for her own failures. She compromises, and we can't excuse that. We can't downplay it, and we can't try to read around what the text says here. We can't explain it away. Here's this young girl who makes moral compromises, but the story is not about those moral compromises. The story is how God can deliver people from their moral compromises and use them for His glory. And in this case, He uses Esther to prevent the extermination of of her people. Many years later, God would do the very same thing, and would, in a situation that would prove to be, probably the worst moral compromise of all history. Remember at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested by a band of soldiers, the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus is then bound, and he's taken to um, Annas, and then to the high priest Caiaphas. And while Jesus is inside there's this kangaroo court being held and a a parade of false witnesses, people lying about Jesus, are are brought in. But outside, there's another trial taking place and there's more lying happening. Because you remember Peter's following along. and So Peter finds himself outside in the courtyard while Jesus is being tried inside. And one of the servant girls notices Peter and says, uh, aren't you also one of this man's disciples? And Peter says, no, I'm not. And he goes to warm himself over by the fire and one of the bystanders says, aren't you one of the disciples of this man? And again, Peter says, I'm not. And then one of the servants of the high priest who had been there at the arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane says, didn't I see you there with him? And for a third time, Peter denies it. And immediately, the rooster crows, and Peter is suddenly aware of what he has done, and he breaks down, and he weeps. And you can, you can only imagine the disappointment that Peter would have had with himself. It's not too hard because you've been there. You can imagine what it was like for Peter to deny his Lord and choose safety and security, rather than risk, obedience, and identifying with Jesus. You can imagine how at this uh, critical moment, it was easier for Peter to to give in, although it doesn't excuse his moral compromise, but you can imagine what it was like for him. So, I put before you, how many times in your life have you made excuses like Esther or like Peter that you couldn't resist the forces that led you to your sin or to your denial, that it was outside of your control because ultimately you were simply unwilling to suffer the consequences of doing what was right. And how many times have you rationalized by telling yourself you didn't really have a choice How many times have you given into the cultural standard rather than to stand out as someone for whom Christ has given his life for? See, the the glorious news of the gospel is that God is able to gather up your moral failures and use them for something glorious and redemptive in the end. That is the message of the cross. It tells us that there's... There's really nothing that we do that's completely unredeemable, that God is able to take our our moral failures and to incorporate them and make something good out of it. And it does not mean that there aren't consequences for your choices, that you're not going to suffer for those choices. That does not mean that... uh, what you've done is ultimately right because in the end it all works out for God's glory anyway. And it certainly does not mean, as Paul's opponents put before him, that if, if God's going to redeem our, ma- our bad behavior, behavior, why shouldn't we just sin that grace should abound all the more? And what does Paul say about that? God forbid. What are you, stupid that you think that you can do sin and that and God's approving of that? That's what Paul's saying, not me. the remarkable scandalous truth is that god's providence is strong enough and his grace is big enough to take our moral compromises, our failures, our sins and he includes them into the larger redemptive story there is hope for us just as there was hope for esther and hope for Peter. Perhaps we have ended up on a position solely because of our opportunistic scheming, like Esther. And yet we still trust that God will use even our failures for his ultimate glory. I mean, who knows? Isn't it a wonder of God's sovereign grace that he can redeem the seemingly unredeemable? Gordon McDonald tells this story. About this uh, uh, English pub on the south of England, on the on the coastline, there was a terrible storm happening, and people were coming in out of the weather for this um, into this pub. And people are laughing and drinking, sharing beers, and and uh, the, as the storm gets worse, more and more people have come into the pub, and it gets louder and more animated through through the night, and the place is full, and people are you know, laughing and, and gesturing. A waitress has this tray, and it's full of coffee and tea and ale, and she's carrying it overhead because the, the room is so crowded. Somebody makes a gesture, it knocks the tray off of her hands, and the entire contents spill against this freshly painted wall. And everyone just goes silent. You know, the, the crash, the stain, the owner of the pub is really angry because this is his freshly painted wall so there's this silence for a moment and then this man steps forward and says you know perhaps i can be of help here and he steps out and he has he opens this little case that has uh painter supplies in it brushes and charcoal pencils and And different paints and he starts to with his charcoal he starts to line out some of these different stains and he draws pictures from these stains and then he brings out his paints and he starts to paint over the wall that's been stained and for about an hour people are just watching while he's painting and then after that hour he takes one of his charcoal pencils and he, he writes in the lower left-hand corner. He gathers his stuff off and he disappears back out into the storm. Everybody is just kind of spellbound. They lean in to, to check out his signature and they see that it's one of England's, England's most famous painters. And he has transformed this stain, this disaster, into a, a beautiful work of art. See, that's what God does with our stains. It's not that they're not stains. It's not that they're not without consequences. It's not that your sin hasn't ruined the palate. It has. The point, however, is the redemptive power of God to take our sin-stained life and create it into something that is, that is beautiful. And that's the power of God's sovereign grace. Whatever compromises you've made whatever failures you've had the truth of the matter is that providence tells us that god is subtly at work all through our lives as he was with Esther's life that his grace is greater than your failures and just like the artist in the pub god takes the the, the blemishes and the the blotches and he, and he uses them and he redeems them and transforms them by his grace into something beautiful. This is the original Cinderella story. Here's Esther, an orphan, young girl. She's a member of this subjugated Jewish race. She becomes queen of the Persian Empire but I guess we're going to have to wait a week to find out if she actually lives happily ever after. (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare for this um, communion, we ask that you'd also prepare our hearts, that we see this not as being the uh, refreshment at the end of the sermon, but rather... We recognize in these elements the body, the blood of Jesus Christ and the great cost that was paid for our redemption. We set aside these common things, this bread and this wine to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And we set aside these common lives and we ask you to sanctify them, to use them for your glory. Father, we pray that you would help us to not only recognize the body and the blood of Jesus, but to recognize the body in the brothers and sisters who share this meal with us. And may Christ Jesus be glorified here this day, we pray. Amen.